0: Wilmer, thank you very much for my glittering CV. I could hardly recognise myself, and thank you for so many of you coming along today. Uh, the exhibition itself is eclectic, interdisciplinary, and very different from traditional bodily and exhibitions. I see my role as promoting public engagement and to bring to a wider audience the contribution Oxford Medicine has made to reducing human suffering and increasing well being. The objective is to join the past to the present and avoid what C.P. Snow described as a society split into two cultures, the sciences on the one hand and humanities on the other. Great Medical Discoveries chronicles the story of Oxford's contribution to human health from its medical origins to its present status as one of the world's leading scientific institutions. For more than 800 years, Oxford has made a remarkable contribution to the art and science of medicine and has had a longer continuous connection with natural science than any other city in England. Scientists, philosophers and physicians periodically made the city an outstanding scientific centre of the medieval West, establishing much of the scientific attitude and spirit which now is taken for granted. Their influence and innovation have reverberated through the centuries, providing a continuous thread to the scientific developments of today and tomorrow. The exhibition features, obviously, the literary treasures of the Bodleian, together with laboratory notebooks, letters, inventions, and medical apparatus. From the first description of the cell in Robert Hooke's Micrographia and Harvey's explanation of the role of the heart and blood circulation in the 17th century, to the therapeutic discovery of penicillin, the world's first antibiotic. The exhibition will trace the role of Oxford, role in medical research and discoveries that have increased our understanding of the workings of the human body, both in health and in disease. It is generally considered that before the 20th century, the most obvious pinnacle was the 17th century. And in this period, Oxford medicine witnessed an extraordinary resurgence what Charles Webster has called a golden age, which arguably has never been surpassed in Oxford and may well represent an unrivaled period in the entire history of modern medicine. During the tumultuous years of the English Civil War, the experimental ingenuity of Harvey, Lower, Locke, Willis and Wren propelled medicine into a new era. The flowering of invention was partly due to the breadth of intellectual perspective which informed scientific work during the period. And this group represented the true interdisciplinary ideal, and they were as intellectually devoted to philosophy, architecture, and astronomy as they were to dissection, blood flow, and brain function. The Bodleian has not had an exhibition showcasing the contribution of medicine since 1947. So it was very interesting to work with the excellent exhibition staff here to showcase some of Oxford's groundbreaking discoveries. The exhibition is not an attempt to chronicle the whole history of medical science in Oxford. It is merely an historical snapshot looking at the episodes that I hope visitors will find fascinating, original, and compelling. We, I wanted to begin uh, with Roger Bacon because. Next year is widely accepted as the the 800th anniversary of his birth. And this is just an example of the wonderful treasures that the the Bodleian um, have kindly liberated and showcased. Um, And he is seen really as a bedrock of scientific thinking in the city. Known as England's Doctor Mirabilis, he led the way towards the conception of science as an inductive study of nature based on and tested by experiment. Bacon's aphorism was, without experiment, nothing can be known sufficiently. In the language of today, we could call that evidence-based medicine. As I mentioned, a central theme driving the exhibition has been to link the past to the present. And this has been achieved by showcasing different themes. And one of the themes in the exhibition is blood and its diseases. An arc runs through from Harvey to haemophilia to malaria and tropical medicine. William Harvey's name is rightly in the forefront of medical history. And his book on the motion of the heart is one of the most influential books ever published on physiology or indeed in the whole history of medicine. And there is a magnificent display case dedicated to his achievements. But I also wanted to show the work of 20th century Oxford on inherited blood diseases. Uh, the Churchill Hospital where this work was carried out in the 40s, 50s and 60s was originally built by the American army for its own soldiers. And here we can see um, Rosemary Biggs, some of you may know, the great Gwyn McFarlane and also Ethel Bidwell here. And they were working with young children who had haemophilia. MacFarlane um, himself had been dedicated to trying to uncover um, the causes and the treatment for haemophilia throughout his life. They also, up in Headington, they had a house where they would take these children and allow them to recuperate over a long period of time. And the house was called, some of you may have known him, it was called the Sir Weldon Dalrymple Champneys House. I never met the man, but he was the um, president of the British uh, Haemophilia Society. And Charles Rizzer, who was a physician up at the Churchill Tell me that Sir Weldon could be seen in Oxford wearing yellow spats. Um, there are two forms of inherited haemophilia. Classic haemophilia A, which is a mutation in the factor VIII gene, and Christmas disease, or haemophilia B, which is rare. And both are caused by mutations on the X chromosome. So almost overwhelmingly, these are rare diseases and diseases of men and not women. The disease was also known, some of you might know it as the royal disease, with Queen Victoria and her daughters being carriers, and of course the Romanov dynasty were known carriers of the rare strain of haemophilia B. Under the guidance of Gwynne Macfarlane, uh, who deciphered the cascade process of blood coagulation, Oxford became one of the world's leading centres for the treatment of haemophilia. He also gave the name for the rarer form called Christmas disease, because Stephen Christmas, he was a, a child who was born in England, emigrated to Australia and came back here on holiday. He became ill and a blood sample was taken and sent up to the haemophilia unit that uh, McFarland worked at. They examined this and they found that the, the problem with, uh, for Stephen was that he had this defective factor 9 gene which wouldn't allow his blood to clot so they named it after him so that's why it's called sometimes christmas disease the cause and the cure of this type of haemophilia began to attract the attention of a molecular biologist in oxford called george Brownlee. george was working at the dunn school and he used a pioneering form of sequencing which he had learned in cambridge while working with fred sanger and Brownlee first cloned and patented the production and the chemical use of recombinant blood clotting factor 9. Interestingly, George Brownlee came to the dinner last week, and he is Fred Sanger's biographer. Sanger died last week. He's one of the few people to have two Nobel Prizes. I think it's only Marie Curie who had the other two. And I said to him, I said, what did you learn from Sanger about your own work? And he said, Sanger said, when you had a problem, you need an in. You need something to give you a start. And he said, when he looked around, he thought he could sequence this, this factor. And within 18 months, um, he had successfully created an artificial form of factor nine, where you didn't need uh, blood from human donors. And this came at a particularly good time in the 1980s, due to the HIV scare, and of course, what was happening? People in Britain were buying blood from the United States of America, from people who were perhaps in prison or destitute and needed money, and this blood was infected. It was called a so, the so-called motorway of infection. But collectively, work undertaken in Oxford transformed the lives of haemophiliacs, previously fearful and doomed to an early death, to one similar to those whose genes had not denied them innate clotting agents. Now, not all of the machines that they were using um, were as highfalutin as those that George Brownlee was using in the Dunn School with his really high-end uh, 20th century technology. And this was used here, they, it was kept at 37 degrees and they used to have blood amulets in here and then they would test the clotting speed of um, how long it would take uh, for the, the clotting to take place. Um, Macfarlane was a haematologist, and many of you might might know him better as a a writer. He wrote both Howard Florey's biography, a wonderful piece of work, and indeed a biography of Alexander Fleming. I was hoping Tom Patterson was going to come along today. I still see him walking by university parks. He's well into his 90s. And I remember Tom telling me when he was at the Radcliffe Infirmary in the 60s, he would get calls from Rosemary Briggs and indeed from McFarlane, saying, we have a young child up here, we want you to operate on his palate. And he thought, well, why would I, I'll do it, but why would I want to do it? The child's going to die soon. And they said, you just carry out the operation, and we will look after the post-operative care. It was an extraordinary achievement. We have the man in the room. Um, Alan Hill is with us today, and I'm so pleased. Hundreds of millions of people across the world have diabetes, and over three million people suffer from the disease in this country. I believe a million people have the disease and don't even know they have it. The milestone discovery of the glucose electrode by Alan Hill and his colleagues in 1982 has had a transformative effect on the lives of millions of diabetes sufferers. Hill's invention, I have one here in front of me, which monitors the amount of Sugar in a blood sample allows diabetes to be managed, diabetics to manage their condition easily, free from anxiety, thanks to the accurate and discreet and convenient sensor. And over 27 billion of these have been sold worldwide. That's three for every person in the world. It's been an extraordinary invention. But as Alan will tell you, in the 1980s, once they'd perfected this way to monitor blood, They travel thousands of miles in Britain trying to interest big pharmaceutical companies and other companies in taking this idea to market. Now, this was at a time before ISIS innovation, a time before the university took a stakeholder share in the inventions of the people it employs. And it wasn't until they found, a, I suppose, a venture capitalist today who put £10 million into the idea and, of course, some 10 years later, the company was sold for a great deal of money to the American giant Abbott. And Alan is a, what we call a basic scientist. He's a chemist. He wasn't one of these people working in a lab with patients, trying to think, how can we translate our discovery into something that will help people? So sometimes discoveries come along like this, incidentally, from people in the, in the back room. I mentioned I wanted to follow this theme of blood. This is the uh, most dangerous animal in the world. It's not that the mosquito kills, it's the vector for the parasite that carries the disease. Altruism should be a part of medicine. And while very few diseases have been entirely eradicated, perhaps smallpox, polio, guinea worm, very few others have been truly eradicated. But throughout the developing world, millions of people die annually uh, because, for economic reasons, of diseases that have been eradicated here in the richer countries. And this invidious and avoidable tragedy was the incentive for David Wetherill, the Nuffield Professor of Medicine, to to accept an invitation in 1978 to go to the Rockefeller Laboratory to a meeting called The Great Neglected Diseases of Mankind. Wetherall went there, and over a particularly good bottle of whiskey with the then director of the Well Community, a man called Peter Williams. Williams is, is still alive. Williams had lived his childhood in the Caribbean, and they were both very interested in tropical diseases. I've heard David Wetherall being called a third world doctor. But uh, over this bottle of whiskey, they decided they were going to change the concept of tropical medicine. To medicine in the tropics, and they were going to get some Oxford doctors out there to where the diseases were. With money from the welcome, they sent out David Worrell, who's a world expert on snake bites, and him and his wife Mary, who's also a clinician, went to Thailand in Bangkok in 1979, and famously, Wetherall muttered, thought, this won't last six months, but it has. And in 1980, uh, Nick White um, went out there, And it was Nick White's work that has changed how the malaria is treated, moving from the older diseases of the 19th and early 20th century to these what are called artemisinin combination drugs. And these are the things that are now in the forefront trying to roll back malaria. Africa is the most malarious continent in the world. And in 1989... Kevin Marsh went out to Khalifi on the east coast of Kenya and the welcome unit, Oxford unit, has been out there ever since. And at their unit, they started pioneering the use of these insecticide bed nets and this has changed the natural history of, of the disease. So today, Oxford Medicine has a presence in China, India, Southeast Asia, Africa and South America. And in 2012, believe it or not, when the Oxford Medical School was voted I don't know what the matrix is, but anyway, this the, the Times Higher Educational Supplement said that Oxford Medical School was the best medical school in the world. And at the top of the list, they put the Africa and Asia tropical network. Uh, they single them out for special praise. And indeed, recently, while I was talking to David Worrell, he told me that the microscope is still essential for doctors working in the tropics. Now, let me see if I can find that. Good. Um, this is a, something, it's a Hook's microscope. We don't know where it is. It's been lost forever. One of his many biographers, Alan Chapman, who's going to give a lecture, I think, on Robert Hooke in this series, made this himself. It's a, it's a, it's a replica. And he made this in 1975. And it's actually in the exhibition. For a period A very short period, and let me tell you, the history of Oxford medicine, there have been some pretty fallow periods. But for those 12 years between 1648 and 1660, Oxford was Britain's main centre of scientific activity. In the middle of this ferment were Locke, Boyle, Willis, Wren, and a prodigious, Robert Hooke. His publication, Micrographia, in 1665, marked a watershed in scientific thought, The book was a scientific bestseller, inspiring wide public interest in the new science of microscopy. The book contained 38 plates, including the famous one that we always see, of fleas, and featured the first biological use of the word cell in describing the pores of wood. All earthly life is based upon and dependent upon the cell. Hooke's early work laid the foundations which would be built on over the coming centuries by Oxford researchers, leading to the defining discoveries on the regulation of the cell cycle. Jim Gowan's work on the lymphocyte, and the, how the lymphocyte um, travels around the body, and culminating in John Gurdon's 2012 Nobel Prize for his work on reprogramming ordinary cells into immature stem cells. My problem was, putting the exhibition together, we don't have anybody in Oxford with a Nobel Prize in medicine. Um, But, of course, Gurdon, he certainly did his... He made his reputation in Oxford, and the outstanding thing about Gurdon's Nobel Prize, he got it for his work that he did in Oxford in 1962. So he had to wait 50 years, not the longest that somebody has has waited, but nonetheless. Um, The great scientific advance in Oxford during the 17th century took place, as I say, in the turbulent years of the English Civil War, War when, as Christopher Hill in his book, he called it, when the world was turned upside down. Alongside hook and lower, Thomas Willis remains a giant in the field of early modern scientific research, and his work marks the beginning of neurology. Willis used the word neurology in his book Cerebri Anatomy in 1664, and the book came from Willis's decision to undertake a new study of the anatomy of the brain in order to find out the causes of paralysis, insomnia, epilepsy, hysteria, and convulsions. Cerebri anatomy is chiefly remembered today for this first complete description of the arterial cycle at the base of the brain. It was later coined the circle of Willis. Every medical student around the world will study the circle of Willis. The diagram on the left is by Christopher Wren, and a lot of the dissecting work was carried out by Richard Lower. We don't have anything of Lower in the exhibition, but I've written about him in my book. He's a a man that uh, deserves great attention. On the right, we have a contemporary image of the Circle of Willis. And now for people to have a look at the Circle of Willis, they don't need to dissect us. And here we can see the, the patient's nose here on the top. But you can see the tremendous work that they were doing. I mean, Wren is just an outstanding character. He was gifted at everything he did. Most people know him for being an architect, but of course um, he studied astronomy. Well, we have to. Uh, Dorothy Hodgkin, still the only woman to win a Nobel Prize for science. Left-wing, outstanding, dedicated, tenacious, an unbelievable chemist, and the most, one of the most remarkable people that. Uh, Oxford has turned up, really, in the the last two or three centuries. Um, She discovered the structures of penicillin, insulin, and, of course, vitamin B12 through her uh, use of crystallography. In 1941, Florey and his team at the William Dunn School asked Dorothy to solve and map the molecular structure of penicillin, which she succeeded in doing in 1945, and her dedication to the cause won her the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1964. I mean, famously, she inspired a whole group of very able, scientifically minded women to go to Som- Somerville. And of course, Margaret Roberts, Thatcher became the first prime minister, uh, woman prime minister in Britain. And of course, she's also and still remains the first and only scientist to be elected prime minister of this country. I remember in 2010 going to see, see Dame Fiona Caldecott. She was then the principal of Somerville, and she was telling me when she was young, she wanted to come and meet uh, Dorothy, and she applied to Somerville, and they rejected her. She had, to, she had to go to St Hilda's. So she said 40 years later, when she applied for the job as a principal of Somerville, she was there on the interview panel, being interviewed, and a senior tutor leaned over and said, so... Dame, oh, she wasn't Dame then. So, Fiona, why Somerville? It could be any college, couldn't it? And she said, no, I still have some unfinished business here. Um, but let's get on to penicillin, perhaps the greatest story in biomedical history. The Dunn School was literally turned in to a factory um, during the Second World War, and it was an extraordinary achievement of leadership by Florey. But behind all of this is this element of curiosity. And curiosity is an essential ingredient in medical discovery. In this sense, penicillin was not discovered because society demanded that scientists come up and tackle the problem of pneumonia. It wasn't because of that. And even Chain and Flory entered the field only because of their curiosity about the properties of the walls of bacteria. More than any other drug, penicillin liberated the art of medicine from its ineffectiveness against disease, and brought a cure for the lethal common infections of pneumonia, meningitis, and septicemia. This was the dawn of the antibiotic age, which changed doctors' and society's perceptions of medicine's possibilities. On the 25th of May 1940, eight mice were injected with a lethal dose of streptococci bacteria, four were treated with penicillin, and four were used as controls. However, very few drugs have such a dramatic effect as penicillin and famously Howard Florey was allergic to statistics. He used to say, look, either all of my patients are dead or they're all alive. But it isn't like that today. And When people make advances, it's usually incremental. A half a percent here, a one percent there. So he, he, could, he, could, uh, not, uh, he could be allergic to statistics, but most people, most scientists today, they, uh, they love them. The job of the historian is to remember what other people forget. And I wanted to show the importance of Norman Heatley in the penicillin story. The Nobel Prize was shared by Alexander Fleming, deservedly or whatever, but, um, and uh, Howard Flory and indeed Ernst Chain. And Heatley was rather forgotten outside of Oxford. And I met Heatley at his home in, in the 90s. And he was a little bit confused there, and he was, he was old, but you could still get the feeling that the relationship between him and Chain, the other biochemist, was delicate. He said Chain used to come up to him and say, Heatley, penicillin, it's yellow. And Heatley used to say, why? why here? And he said, because I'm telling you. But penicillin wasn't yellow. It, it turned out to be white. Um, some problems in medicine are just too hard to solve sometimes. And this seems to be the case with Alzheimer's disease today. The only instruction that doctors can give you with any degree of certainty is exercise and drinking cups of tea. Sometimes problems are just too far away. But occasionally, like with penicillin, when there's a sort of a superhuman effort, during that period when the war was there, when everything was going in the right way, and you have this critical mass of people Sometimes these problems can be solved. It's what Peter Medawar, the immunologist, called the art of the soluble. But some problems are just too far away. You can only get to them uh, in bits. I wanted to try and have a look at something else, at bedside teaching. There could have been an exhibition in the Bodleian covering the teaching of students, and that would have been a whole exhibition in itself. But what I wanted to do was to have a look at Thomas Sydenham in the 17th century, Genius, brilliant, early forerunner of epidemiology, great writer, and William Osler, a hundred years ago, Osler, the most famous doctor of his time, who said his epitaph would be, "I taught students in the wards." Um, Sydenham eschewed the scientific ferv- fervor of lots of people in Oxford in the middle of the 17th century, and he thought, if you want to study medicine don't come to Oxford, you know, it's a place to study shoemaking rather than medicine. He didn't like that whole idea of, of people thinking about hypotheses. He believed in, he prized observation, he avoided speculation, and he used his senses. When somebody asked him, what's the best medical book to read? He said, read Don Quixote. That will give you all the answers you want. Um, Osler, of course, was a famous bibliophile and a great friend of the libraries, and um, he was very famous about teaching should be patient-centred. He wanted to move away from a thing where a lecturer would speak down in a great hall like this to students. He wanted people to be at their bedside. And in fact, when I talked to David Wetherill, he said, many of his friends complain when they go and see their GPs, not my GP, of course, um, since he's here in the audience today. Um, But when they go and see GPs, they say, "Um, the doctor never looks at me. He never looks into, she never looks into my eyes. They just look at the screen in front of them. So, in a way, feeling better, healing, is still, some way, you could say, is an art more than a science. I couldn't do Oxford without, of course, Richard Dahl, and He's always in the news, and why wouldn't he be? He, was an absolutely, he had made an extraordinary contribution to Britain, and uh, he changed the health of the nation. When he was here as Regis Professor... He uh, established five new chairs and set the foundation that had been built upon by the Nuffield Benefaction. And these five new chairs really propelled the medical school into the modern world. Um, More than any other physician, here was a man, he didn't see patients. It was just the power of statistics and power of persuasion. When Richard wrote his first paper in 1950, over 80% of middle-aged men smoked in Britain. That figure is less than 20% today. From having the highest rates of lung cancer in the world, Britain now has the greatest decrease in lung cancer deaths in the world. An extraordinary achievement. And of course, he also founded Green College, Green Templeton, which is the only college with an outright uh, dedication to to medicine. Extraordinary. We have a beautifully designed display case tracing the history of Joshua Silver's invention in the 1980s, to its role today as a WHO program to bring vision to myopic teenagers across the world. Um, Silva's a retired atomic physicist, started doing doodling, you know, the way that, he said he was curious. And his ambition is to bring these spectacles to the one billion people across the world who can't afford them. There are, that there's probably more than a million children who can't see the blackboard And he invented these self-refracting spectacles where you have two lenses, and here the syringe is used to put in some kind of a a liquid in here, it's a silicon. And what you do is you become your own optician. And it works for 95% of vision. So at the extremes, it would be no good for people. And this has been an extraordinary idea, which is now there are now these spectacles in 15 of the poorest countries in the world and really being able to see and being educated is a democratic human right. The eponymous Oxford knee. I was hoping that John O'Connor was going to be here today, but thanks to Richard Dole and the National Health Service and perhaps growing affluence, we all seem to be living longer. In 1950, only 20% of British people lived to the biblical age of 70. Now 80% lived to the biblical age, and it's getting more all of the time. But sometimes, in order to make it there, you need some remedial help. I'm going to have a guess. Is there anyone here with an Oxford knee, this partial knee replacement? The great advantage of the Oxford knee, if any of you sort of had a trouble getting in here, is that, unlike a total knee, the the tendons aren't severed and of course the recuperation is is all that much better. While the exhibition that I've curated is by necessity historical in perspective, it also looks at the future and to the work of the Structural Genomics Consortium, which seeks to discover new drugs against human diseases using innovative open access practices. We have to ask ourselves today, where are the new drugs coming from? There are no new analgesics. There are no, no new antibiotics coming. GlaxoSmithKline profits down by a third. These big companies, Pfizer, closed down in Sandwich in Kent and been there 100 years. Not that Pfizer is a British company, it's an American company. But nonetheless, there seems to be these drugs that have targets, but we're not coming up with any of these new drugs. It takes about 15 years to create a new drug, it costs a billion pounds, and drug companies are not willing to have a stab at it. The message of the exhibition is that Oxford has made an enduring contribution to medical science, and that while medicine is a science, it is also an art, and that what happened in Oxford is important for all time. Today, the medical science division forms the biggest part and the most generously funded area of Oxford University. If medical sciences stood alone, it would be the fifth biggest university in the country, and uh, when... People come to Oxford, there are many thousands of people who come here. But these visitors, when they come, they see very little of the energy, creativity and physical presence of medicine. The many thousands of researchers, physicians and scientists are located outside the medieval walls of the city. So perhaps it is fitting that the exhibition, Great Medical Discoveries, 800 Years of Oxford Innovation, is taking place here in the very heart of Gothic Oxford. What better place to showcase medicine's enduring role in reducing human suffering and increasing human well-being? Thank you.